month ago, we looked at verses 19 through 21 here in Hebrews 10. I, uh, I guess it's in those verses that uh, the author of Hebrews summarizes all that he has laid out in, in chapter 7 through 10. He's transitioning in this, uh, this paragraph in, in Hebrews, so I took the opportunity to take a stab at a summary of the book of Hebrews up to this point, chapters 1 through 10. Uh, what we saw there is that Christianity hangs on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Obviously, Christianity hangs on Christ. Uh, that's where we get Christianity. And in <clears throat> Christianity, we can distinguish between the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So the person of Christ, who is Christ? At least according to the author and the book of Hebrews here. He is the new supreme revelation from God. He is the main way God has revealed Himself to us. God has spoken in His Son. He is the superior leader and mediator for God's people. He's the new high priest establishing uh, the relationship between God and man. And, and He's the head of the new covenant wherein all God's promises come to fruition. That's who Christ is. And what does Christ do? Well, according to Hebrews, as priest, he offers himself as the final, once for all, sacrifice for sin, which opens up the presence of God to the people of God. That's what Christ has done. Through his sacrifice, he has opened up the presence of God to the people of God. And this is how God saves the world. This is how God saves the world through revelation and leader and high priest and sacrifice and covenant. And it's at this point, it's not wrong to ask, so now what? So what should I, what should I do? Uh, I am a Christian. What, what should I be doing? What should be my focus? What does healthy Christianity look like? Uh, this isn't the only place you should go in the Bible to answer that question. Uh, I don't think this passage is unrelated to what we're working through uh, in Ephesians. As uh, Sam preaches through Ephesians and considering spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Uh, but th this is another great text to answer. What should I be doing? What should be my priorities as a follower of Christ. Keep in mind that this letter is written for Christians who were apparently in danger of drifting away, as the author writes in, in Hebrews 2, or they were in danger of falling away in unbelief, as he wrote in chapter 3, or falling away even into apostasy, uh, as he wrote about in chapter 6. And so if you've ever worried, is my focus right? Uh, what should I do so that I don't make shipwreck of my faith? How, how can I endure to the end? This, this passage very practically gives three things. Draw near, hold fast, and encourage. Draw near, hold fast, and encourage. And uh, we're going to look at the first two of those this morning. So we've established we, we have the supreme revelation from God. We have the God has revealed Himself to us. 
We have this leader to, who can lead us to the rest that no other human leader has ever been able to lead before. We have this priest who establishes a relationship with God. We have the perfect sacrifice once for all. We have this new covenant grounding our relationship with God. And then the, in light of all that, the first thing that the author of Hebrews lists for us to do here is to draw near. Verse 22. To draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Four things. Four things to notice in this passage. First, he, he, So he's telling us to draw near. This isn't the first time the author of Hebrews has encouraged these Christians and us to do this. Back in chapter 4, Verse 16, he says something very similar. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace. And Sorry, and to find grace to help in time of need. He's already told them to draw near. He's already told them to draw near in chapter 7, verse 25, where he writes, consequently, Christ, this, this, this high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So this, this drawing near to God is, is a theme that the author has already, already uh, established in, in the book of Hebrews. But, but this isn't just a theme of the book of Hebrews. Drawing near to God and the presence of God is, is a theme throughout the whole Bible. You think going all the way back to, to Genesis, what, what are Adam and Eve ultimately, what are they banned from when they're banished from the Garden of Eden? They're banned from the presence of God. Right? They're, I mean, they, they lose other things. Life outside the Garden uh, in the world that is cursed is very, is very difficult. But that is not the worst thing that they have lost. They have lost the presence of their Creator, the one uh, whom they're made to be in fellowship with. That is the greatest tragedy in Genesis 3. They're made to be in His presence and they're banished from His presence. And as you continue to work through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what's happening in, in those books as God gives, his, as He rescues His people from Egypt, it gives them the law. What, what is God doing as He gives them instructions for the tabernacle and the Levitical priesthood, uh, if not making a way for them to have an opportunity at greater closeness with Him. He is giving the opportunity to draw near to Him. You know, we read those, it, it seems like those come really fast, but you think at the, at the point when they're building the tabernacle that God's going to come dwell in, it has been thousands of years since any human being has been able to draw near to the presence of God. It's a revolution what God, the opportunity God's giving them. When we read about that in, in Exodus, this is an incredible privilege for the people of God to be able to draw near to Him. And you continue to work through the Bible. We have David writing things like he does in Psalm 16 as he contrasts, contrasts the, 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 the life of those who follow Yahweh with those who are idolaters. And he writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. David wants to be in the presence of God. Or consider Asaph in Psalm 73, who's writing in a, a similar psalm. 
he writes, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The Old Testament prophets point to a time when God will come again and dwell with his people. Read about that in passages like Isaiah 66 and uh, Zechariah 1 and 2. In the New Testament, we have John describing uh, God coming in human flesh and dwelling among us. For what purpose? So that we can be near Him. Uh, what is the New Testament? What, what are the Gospels? But, but uh, an explanation of God's drawing near to us. And how does the Bible end? The Apostle John writes in, in Revelation 21, he, he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. and They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. So nearness to God is not a side issue in, in Christianity. It is, it is at the center. It's one of the main themes of Scripture. Nearness to God has been the plan of salvation from, from the beginning. What, what is a Christian if not someone who longs to be in the presence of God? One of the ways to, to just think about your life, reflect on your life, or, or measure your life is, is on a continuum of Far, being far from God and, and, and being near to God. Obviously, the Bible doesn't give us an address to locate God. There's not geographical coordinates to draw near to Him. Drawing near to Him isn't, isn't like that. You can't go somewhere on earth to draw near to Him. Uh, Charles Hodge, the great 19th century Princeton theologian, he points out that distance from God in, in this case uh, thinking about it in, in this context here, distance from God looks like ignorance of God. It looks like a, like a lack of knowledge of knowing, knowing who He is. That's one way we're distant from Him. But it's also, secondly, it's, it's, it's the absence of communion with God. It's the absence of fellowship with God and enjoyment of God. I mean, just in general, you, you distance yourself from the things that you do not enjoy. That's, that's, that's what we do. You distance yourself from things you, you do not enjoy. If you do not enjoy Chinese food, you avoid local establishments that prepare that kind of food. And examples could go on and on and on. We distance ourselves from the things that we do not enjoy. And similarly, we draw near to the things we desire more of. We draw near to the places that we desire and enjoy. We draw near to the people we enjoy and desire. And the things and the activities that we desire. And because of the person and the work of Christ, human beings now can draw near to God like never before. If, if the tabernacle was a revolution in, in human history, how much more is what Christ has done a revolution in human history in providing a way for people, human beings created in God's image who've been separated from Him to draw near to Him. This isn't just some passing 
comment here. This, this is what we are made for. This is what human beings are made for. But the author doesn't, uh, he, just, he doesn't just tell them we're supposed to draw near to him. He also describes the manner in which we're to draw near to him. So secondly, looking here at verse 22, we're supposed to draw near with a true heart. True heart here just pointing to uh, a sense of authenticity as we draw near. God has always desired hearts, people's hearts, that truly desire and enjoy Him rather than that see Him as just some means to something else. right? Because you can fill your life with religious activity. You can read books. You can read lots of books. You can engage in all kinds of religious conversation. You can listen to exclusively Christian music. You can surround yourself with Christian friends. You can show up at every church function and church every Sunday. But your heart can ultimately be looking for something else. You can't, it's just not the mere fact of drawing near to Him. You can't just go through the motions of drawing near to Him. Your heart is critical in that endeavor. Jesus rebukes people who loved reading Christian books, who loved engaging in religious conversation. I don't know what they would have thought of Christian music, but they certainly surrounded themselves with with. Christian friends, and they certainly showed up at every religious function and the, all the extra ones. And Jesus responds to those people, like we see in Matthew 15, verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We shouldn't draw near to God under false pretenses. Our hearts matter. We draw near with hearts that truly desire communion with the God who has revealed himself to us in Christ. Now, now immediately we should recognize that, that some will hear this and they'll hear it the wrong way. Right? You can read, draw near with a true heart, and then you can ask yourself, okay, well, do I ever really draw near with a true heart? Right? Is my heart ever really true enough to draw near to God? And of, and of course the answer to those questions is no. No, it's never good enough. Uh, but, but that is the wrong way to, to apply this, this, this passage. More on that in just a second. Because if you stumble over true heart, uh, you're sure to stumble over the third thing to see in this passage, or to note in this, this verse. He says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So that's how we're supposed to draw near to God. With a true heart, in full assurance of, of faith. And, and this is where the endless introspection can begin if you let it, right? Because once again, well, do I ever really have full assurance of faith? Is my faith ever full enough? If we, if we turn these descriptions into strict qualifications, this, this whole passage self-destructs. That's not the way to read this. What is the basis of our drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What, what is the basis of that? It's, it's not you. It's not yourself. It's not your level of obedience. It's not the degree to which you've kept God's commands. It's not the purity of your religious devotion or the level of your zeal. It's, it's, it's not. It's what we see in verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21 
is the basis for why we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our confidence to enter the holy places, our, our confidence to draw near to God is there because we enter by the blood of Jesus, verse 19. Or verse 20, that we enter by the new and living way He opened for us. Or verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you are not in verses 19 through 21. You're nowhere there. Someone else is there. And it's because He's there that you can have full assurance of faith, that you can draw near in full assurance and with a true heart. And you remember, he's this great high priest who is able, Hebrews 4.15, to sympathize with our weaknesses as we draw near. And then again, it goes on to say in 16, let us then with confidence draw near. This is Hebrews 4.16. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So just, just a quick note on assurance something that Christians have struggled with for going back all the way. Assurance of salvation. Am I really, am I really saved? If, if the first place you look for assurance of salvation is your own obedience and, and, and even the spiritual fruit in your own life, you will never have assurance of salvation. You'll never have assurance of salvation. If you have any self-awareness of all, at all, you, you will not look at yourself and think, I've got full assurance. The fullness of your assurance is possible only because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ and the perfect priesthood of Christ. That is how we draw near. That is how we are able to enter holy places where God dwells. So in order to draw near to God in full assurance with a true heart, you, you need to acknowledge uh, the one thing you need to do, you need to acknowledge that you fall short. You need to acknowledge that you are not like the one who has entered the holy places. You need to acknowledge your sin. A true, you need a true heart but a true heart for a fallen human being, a true heart is one that acknowledges it needs Christ's blood. If you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, Christians are not people. You, you, you need to recognize we are not a group of people gathered here this morning who are congratulating ourselves on our spirituality. Uh, we're not here to look down on the rest of society uh, because of uh, how how great we have uh, uh, made ourselves and how uh, wonderfully we have kept uh, a particular list of, of duties. We are here because we are guilty. The one thing that we all share together is we are guilty. And if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning or if you're not a, not a Christian and you're here for whatever right of a reason, you need to recognize that uh, we're not here to tell you we're better than you. We're here to invite you to join us as uh, fellow fallen human beings who have rebelled against the God who made us. We are sinners. We are people who deserve judgment. And God has graciously supplied 
salvation in Christ. He has, self, he has graciously provided the righteousness we lack, and He has graciously sent His Son to take the punishment for our sin. And He invites all people to put their faith in Him. And those who draw near to Him in faith will find that they are not judged and condemned, but they are forgiven and made children of, of God. Faith is, is, uh, is something that the author of Hebrews is going to take up at great length in, in uh, chapter 11. We're supposed to draw near in full assurance of faith. We'll, we'll wait to talk about faith till, till then. But, but recognize here, recognize right here, whoever you are and whatever you've done, you can draw near to God because Christ is the great high priest. He is the great high priest. You can have a true heart and full assurance of faith if you draw near to Christ. And only through Christ. Because if you draw near on your own, it will not, uh, it will not go well. And, and, and uh, you will be... You will, you will, even as a Christian, you draw near on your own. You will have a miserable... You will have a miserable, confusing Christian life. You must draw near in Christ. The, uh, we can add to this the fourth thing that we have to notice in this, this verse. Sprinkled and, and washed. We are Christians are people who are sprinkled and washed. We draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. This is the, the double cure uh, that Christ accomplished for us that we sing about sometimes in songs like Rock of Ages. Right. So in, in Hebrews 7.19, we, we see that the Old Testament law made nothing perfect. That wasn't the purpose of the Old Testament law. No one was made perfect by the law, and, and uh, it, was, it was something temporary. And then it says, uh, the author writes in Hebrews 9, verse 9, that according to this, this Old Covenant arrangement, the Old, the, the old Covenant law, this old covenant arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Those gifts and sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Christ has offered a sacrifice once for all. Once for all. So His blood on our hearts cures our guilty consciences. Our consciences accuse us because we really are guilty. Like this isn't just some sort of psychological con uh, uh, concept, right? It's just something. It's not just something you need to get over. No, your conscience accuses you because you really are guilty. We are guilty before God, and it makes us uneasy because our guilt really does deserve death, eternal death. But Christ has taken our punishment. Christ has shed His blood in our place. His blood sprinkles our hearts, so to speak. And that changes the disposition of our conscience. Although we're guilty, we, have, we can see in the blood of Christ that, that we are forgiven. We, we can see that punishment has been made. And so our conscience can be clear because guilt is is atoned for. And yet even at that point, you're not quite clean yet. 
right? That's not over at that point because you need also to be clean. It's one thing to just have your record of debt taken away, but you also need to be clean. The Old Testament law required not just the sacrifice of animals continually over and over again, but you read through Leviticus and you also have specific instructions about uh, washings, ceremonial washings. People become defiled, they become unclean in some way, right? You become unclean in all kinds of ways through sickness and blood and bodily discharges and death. Uh, They're all in some way seem to be connected to death. That's what makes us unclean, right? Which just creates this another endless cycle of ceremonial washings, right? But it's through Christ's death and resurrection that we are washed with pure water. There's a clear connection with with, with baptism here. Baptism in 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 the new covenant corresponds with the ceremonial washings in the Old Covenant. You have to be clean in order to be in the presence of God. You have to be clean in order to enter in to the holy places. The difference between the ceremonial washings in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant, the difference is you only need one. You shouldn't get baptized over and over Again, that's kind of become like a new thing. It's like you're feeling spiritual today, and uh, they're doing baptisms, and man, I'm just going to go and do it again. That actually, like, that actually makes less of what Christ has done. It like totally takes away from the fact that the, the whole point is that it, you don't have to do this over and over again. You're clean in Christ. So we draw near to God, sprinkled and washed. In Christ, there's further explanations about drawing near that uh, uh, we'll look at again once uh, we're looking at verses 24 and 25. But but the second thing he instructs these Christians to do these these Christians who have have a priest right who establishes their relationship with God and who have this now sacrifice that has been made once for all. The second thing he tells them to do is to hold fast. Hold fast to the what? Hold fast to the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? What is it? This isn't the first time the author's pointed here either. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He's, he's already said this before in chapter 4. Let us hold fast our confession. What is our confession? You can't turn to any passage of Scripture and find the confession. God didn't inspire it by the Holy Spirit and inscripturate it into Scripture. You can't, it's, 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 it's not there. But, but, the, but the Scripture assumes that we have one. It assumes, it assumes we have one. It assumes that we share it. It assumes that it's something outside of ourselves, that it's objective, that we can recognize. A confession is just a summary of biblical teaching. It's a confession. It's what you believe. So a confession of hope, according to the author of Hebrews, would be a confession of what Christianity so this is the fact that it's not in Scripture is just, is just one of the reasons why we see the formation of, of creeds in the first centuries of the church. Right? The earliest creed going back, the, the Apostles' Creed, 
that we that we know of anyway. Uh, th- that's not in Scripture. That's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's called the Apostles' Creed, but it's very likely not written by the apostles. They call it the Apostles' Creed because the uh, uh, the Christians believe that this was an accurate summary of of what the the apostles taught. Uh, it, it is an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches concerning God and, and, and how he saves, uh, saves people in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And if you think through the first centuries of, of Christianity, as Christianity spreads and as the church grows through the centuries, uh, Christians continue to refine biblical teaching as they study God's Word, as they collect all of the New Testament documents into uh, one complete whole, and, and even more from that, what the very thing that leads them to study it more, most uh, or, or frequently anyway, is is the presence of false teaching as as false ideas appear. This 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 uh, leads Christian believers to go to the scriptures to ask, what has God said? What is true? What do the scriptures teach? And so as they do that, uh, creeds continue to be written, they continue to be scrutinized and, and, and clarified through the centuries. Uh, today, many people look at the Reformation as a time when people got free of the creeds and uh, confessions of the church. They think uh, basically what happened is that all those creeds and confessions, well, the problem was they got elevated too high to the level of Scripture and even above Scripture, and that's true, that was, that was a problem. But sometimes today, there's, there's a, a, a common idea that well, what the Reformation was, the Reformation is when we, we broke free from the, the shackles of, of creeds and, and confessions. But nothing could actually be further from the truth. It, it's, it's in the aftermath of the Reformation that, that Protestant Christians draw up some of the clearest articulations of the Christian faith that have ever been written. So things like the, the Belgic Confession of 1561 or the Westminster Confession of 16. 47, or the Savoy Declaration of 1658, or the Second London Baptist Confession, 1677. Got to put that one in there. But contrary to much popular thought today, uh, those documents, when you go back and read uh, the writings of the men who worked on those documents, th- those were not written to divide Christians. Those were written to unite Christians. And, and they also, they, even maybe more surprising to us sometimes, they're, they're not written to confuse Christians. They're meant to help Christians understand what the Bible teaches and how God has saved us. It's, they're written to help us understand the glory of Christ. And it's really only been in the aftermath of the Enlightenment and the dawn of the age of man and, and through uh, our our society becoming more and more individualistic with confidence in ourselves that we have abandoned creeds and confessions of the church. Now, the direct point in Hebrews here is, is not that we need to recover ancient creeds and confessions of the church. That's not what he's saying. Now, I think, I think we do. I do think that's important. The, the point that we can, we can say here, looking at verse 23, is that Christians are a confessional people. Christians are a people who confess something to be true. Our faith hangs on what we, what we confess. Consider one of the most uh, well-known verses in the Bible, Hebrews, or sorry, Romans 10.9. Right? If you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. It's the simplest confession there is. And every Christian should embrace that coming straight out of uh, the pages of inspired Scripture. Jesus is Lord. And in one sense, this is what we gather for on Sunday morning. This is what we're doing here right now. We are gathering together to confess and acknowledge together Jesus is Lord. But the Bible says much more than that Jesus is Lord. And even that very then in that very statement, that, that phrase leads to many more questions. Well, who is Jesus? What does it mean to believe with your heart? What does it mean to be saved? From what are we saved? And the answers to those questions, they're not peripheral to Christianity. They're, they're central to Christianity. So more in-depth confessions are needed. We need to hold on to something more than just Jesus is Lord. That's a wonderful thing to hold on to. Jesus is Lord. But we often need more, especially as we, we look at what the rest of verse 23 says. We're instructed to hold fast the confession without wavering. Well, how can we do that? How can we hold fast to it without wavering? Well, it's called the confession of our hope. Sometimes all you need for hope is something as simple as recognizing Jesus is Lord. But often, God has given us much more than that, just, than that just Jesus is, is Lord. We, 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 we need to confess more than that. So for example, it's important that we confess that we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons. We believe in the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's that God who gives us hope. And it's truths like that and many others that make our confession a confession of, of hope. If God is not the triune God, we do not have hope. Because if God is not the triune God, some other God is God. And it's the triune God. It takes the triune God to speak long ago in many parts, in many ways, through the prophets, but in these last days to speak to us through His Son and to deliver all of the benefits of what His, Christ, what his, what his Son has accomplished through his, through his Spirit. It's important to recognize that, that our hope cannot be rooted as Christians, our hope cannot be rooted in what we feel about God. Our hope has to be rooted in what we confess about God. And we can't miss what grounds are holding fast to our confession. Verse 23, For he who promised is faithful. The God who we confess the God who spoke long ago at many times and in many ways. He is the one who promised to send the one who would bless all the families of the earth and crush the head of our spiritual enemies. 
And it's in these last days that he has spoken in his son. That son is the supreme revelation. That son is the supreme mediator, the supreme priest and sacrifice that demonstrates God has been faithful. When God promises, he is faithful. What is the Bible except a story of how human beings have failed to be faithful in every agreement we make to God and how God has been faithful again and again and again and again. We can hold to our confession of hope without wavering only because, once again, if you look to yourself, this whole thing self-destructs. We can hold without wavering because He is faithful. And He is still faithful today. No one in our culture, no one in our current culture will critique you if your confession is contentless. The world is actually happy if our confession is really, really short. Now, I don't think they'll even like Jesus is Lord very much, but, but the less you have in your confession, the better off you are overall in our society, right? If you just sort of have general faith, you know, I'm just a person of faith. I'm a spiritual person. You know, I just, I'm a person of belief. You know, society will be fine with that. The whole, the whole world will, has no problem with that. That doesn't threaten anyone at all, if, you're, if your confession is, is content-less. And similarly, no one in our culture will critique you if your confession is merely just your confession, your own personal confession, right? As long as you don't have the confession of faith. Society is fine if you just, I, you know, this is how I express my faith, you know? I believe, I, you know, and, and you can even incorporate the, uh, the ancient creeds and confessions. Of the, you can do that all day with our culture, as long as you're like, that's just my personal thing. But if those, if the truths that those statements of faith establish, if those bear any weight on others, that's where our society begins to have a problem. It's the confession of our hope that the world ultimately hates apart from Christ. So there's a pastor in Pakistan. His name is Eliezer Sidhu. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what uh, the outcome is uh, for him. But someone points a pistol at him and demands that he recite the Shahada. If I'm saying that right, which means all that he has to say. This, this is all. All he has to say is. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. That's all he has to say. In Arabic, I assume. That's all he has to say. But do you know how Pastor Eliezer responded? He said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And he went on. And the gunman pulled the trigger. You don't respond that way in that situation if you are not seeking to draw near to the God who made you and who saves you in Christ. You won't respond that way if, you don't, if you're not 
drawing near to Him with a true heart and full assurance of faith that's all based on the person and work of Christ and not on yourself. You will never respond that way in that situation if what you confess is not the confession of our hope. You won't respond that way if your confession is contentless. You won't respond that way also, though, if the God who promised is not faithful. But Pastor Eliezer responded that way because God is faithful. And he's faithful even though the gunman pulled the trigger and a bullet went through his body. And uh, what I saw is that he was receiving medical care. But God is faithful. He has given us more than we could ever have imagined ourselves in Christ. And He is not just invited us, He's invited us, but He has instructed us to draw near, hold fast to the confession of our hope. And what we'll look at next time is the fact that all that is in the context that we do that together in community and fellowship with one another as well. So let us draw near to Him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope.